You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. This is Jamie Lemke. I'm a senior fellow with the Hayek program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And it's my privilege this morning to be here, or whatever time of day you're listening to this. This is a podcast, after all. Um, but it's my privilege to be here with Karen Vaughn, um, Emeritus Distinguished Senior Fellow in the F.A. Hayek program uh, for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, um, again, here at George Mason University. Uh, but Karen, of course, has had a very long history with George Mason University, and I don't want to do um, too long of a bio because we could be here all day because basically if there's anything important in history of economic thought or Austrian economics or political economy, um, Karen has been involved. Um, editing major journals, um, being a, a department chair here at George Mason uh, during the, the time that public choice and constitutional political economy were really taking off as research agendas and you know, making her own significant contributions, including in her fantastic book, Austrian Economics in America, The Migration of a Tradition. Um, so thank you so much for taking some time to chat here this morning, Karen. Well, thank you for having me, Jamie. It's a privilege to be here. Yeah. Um, and so I thought kind of in honor of uh, Women's History Month coming up, partially, but also just because it's a, an interesting set of questions that I don't think uh, always get discussed very often. I thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit about some of your experiences um, working as a, a woman in economics at a time where that was not a particularly common thing. Um, I know you have some uh, research interests of your, your own that relate to um, women's rights and, and feminism, and I know you've thought a lot about these issues, uh, uh, about what it's like to be um, working as a woman and as a mother. So I want to circle around to all this stuff, um, but maybe as a starting point, since you've expressed interest in developing a pro-market view of feminism, I thought I might just ask the, you know, a question I know that I get asked a lot um, and, and get your answer. Do you consider yourself to be a feminist? That's a very complicated question. <laughs> so let me try to, I started off early in my career. You know, I was one of the few you know, uh, female students in my PhD program. Of course, there were four of us but we were all very strong and very dedicated and all did very well you know, in their professions. I got my first job and there was only one other woman on the faculty. And I was, this was the era you know, of the emergence of women's rights. Betty Friedan had written um, her book and then uh, Ms. Magazine came out and I was a gung-ho feminist. By God, I was, you know, take me seriously. I, this is kind of a silly story, but when Helen Reddy wrote, uh, sang the song, I Am Woman, I used to play it and sing it out loud in my, you know, in, <laughs> in my home. <laughs> um, so at that point, yeah, I did, you know, and I thought, you know, women need to, in the workplace, need to be treated at the same level as, as men. My first job in college, I was in Bloomingdale's working as a salesperson, interested, you know, curious about retail careers, and I learned that Executive trainees 
men were paid $10 more an hour than women were. And I was incensed by that. I thought that was absurd, you know, so. Um, and that, so was, that was just the stated intentional policy? Yeah, and I asked why, and they said, well, that's just the way it is, you know. So that, that kind of prepared me for being, if not active, but very supportive of, of you know, of feminism. Sure. But, and I said this is a complicated question, because then feminism went off in a direction that I found totally incompatible with my understanding of the world. I mean, all of a sudden, it wasn't just enough to go out and champion women's equality, but they wanted coercive measures to support it, and they started wanting a, a whole coterie of, of government programs that were going to you know, enforce this. And I kept thinking, this is not the way to go about it. it you know, I, by this time, I was enough of an economist to know about unintended consequences. And I, and, and I thought, you know, this is probably going to distort the, the progress of women. So I kind of distanced myself. I mean, I was always, I assumed I was equal to everybody else, and by God, you better pay attention to that. But I, I didn't, I stopped my crusading, um, well, I didn't, my, I lost my crusading uh, um, um, ambitions then, so. So that trepidation about uh, feminism turning in, in the direction of looking for coercive measures in order to bring about outcomes that uh, were felt to be more more just or more fair, does that then, th does that connect at all to your interest in Austrian economics? Was that something that you had in mind at that at that time, or was that something you encountered later? Well, I mean, at this time, I was, in, you know, sort of interested in the Austrian school, but I considered myself a neoclassical economist, and mm. um, I just, so I don't think it was. It, it was more my libertarianism. I mean, I was a libertarian before I was an economist, and I only studied economics because I wanted to figure out if I was right about how, you know that the claims about markets that libertarians made. And I, I, so that was, that was a you know, huge part of it. But the other part is kind of, I found an inconsistency in the way a lot of the feminists at that time thought. And it was on the one hand, yes, women are equal, and we just have to get out there and work. And the other one was, oh, give a special consideration because we're women. And I thought, you know, you have to sort that out. And it was this whole thing of, are there gender differences or aren't there? And I, you know, I thought in some areas there were, and you couldn't ignore that, but in other areas, you know, it, 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 they were irrelevant. Well, let, let me tell you one study that came out in the Southern Economic Journal. I, you know the big, the big issue about the 40% gap, you mm -hmm. know, women, only make 60% of what men make, you know. And at, at first, I, you know, that's a very upsetting statistic, isn't it? But then I was read this very careful study, and it was one of the first ones. I, it, since then, there have been many, many more, but it, this was back in the late 70s. And they found once you controlled for, for education, hours of work, um, job, the jobs that women sought, most of that disappeared. And a lot of, so the, 
the and the interesting thing in that particular article that tended to convince me is that unmarried women without children did better than married men in the same jobs. So I'm thinking, well, this has something to do with life choices. It's not only you know some big bad boss saying you're a woman, I'm not going to pay you as much. It has something to do with life choices, and we really needed to examine that you know in greater detail. Yeah, I didn't realize the literature had been finding that since the 1970s because my understanding is that that so as you said there have been many studies and some of them have you know made advancements on the initial methodology and uh -huh. you know, Claudia Golden's work has emphasized in particular the difference that um, being in a different industry or occupational path can have in terms of uh, whether being either a woman or, or a woman with children will be any kind of particular disadvantage. Uh -huh. But that's amazing. That's such a persistent part of um, what's been found. So that's, you know, if it's okay, maybe we can jump and, and just talk here a little bit about the relationship between um, work and motherhood. Uh -huh. Because I think, and then we can c come back to some of the, um, you know, this other um, career history stuff. But this is one of the more you know, most contentious aspects of this conversation that we have today around women in the academy and in the mm -hmm. workplace in general. Mm -hmm. Is you know are workplace environments um, set up to be conducive for mothers to make productive contributions? Is this some kind of uh, it, to what extent is it um, an inevitable, avoidable? Uh, trade-off that's always going to be a handicap for women that men are not necessarily going to face and, and I think there's been a lot of productive conversation about trying to um, to move in this direction of figuring out um, how uh, professional work and motherhood can be compatible but you know as economists there is this uh, you know, just just deep understanding of the fact that women can't have it all mm -hmm. um, because nobody can have it all because <laughs> there are always <laughs> trade-offs. You know, there's no circumstance in which we get it all. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about some of your um, your own um, experiences that you've had, both in terms of um, kind of you know witnessing and being you know a part of these conversations through mm -hmm. your work career. Mm -hmm. but also just in your own life because because mm -hmm. you chose to have children at a time that you were, mm -hmm. you know, really doing a lot of work and, and being very active. <laughs> it's funny you use the phrase, women can't have it all. And because my young, naive self, I thought, I'm going to have it all. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have this great marriage. I'm going to have this great family. I'm going to have this great career. I can do it. I am woman, you know. <laughs> and and <clears throat> we didn't have children for for seven years of our marriage, and it, interestingly, those were my least productive professional years, and partly, um, well, partly it was my own fault, and partly it was kind of disappointment in not having you know a child when I wanted one, and um, and so I never gave it a second thought. You know, I got pregnant at a time when I was looking when I, uh, we had left Tennessee and moved to Washington, D.C., and we decided, okay, we'll look for, we'll go interview at the AEA meetings for jobs for the following year. And I showed up, my interview's vastly pregnant, 
and um, lively going along. And I had an interview with one guy who really liked me. It was in a nice university. And he sort of very hesitantly asked me, um, well, what do you plan to do about your, your baby? Now, today, he would probably be sued for that. Yeah. At the time, I thought it was a reasonable question. You know, am, am I going to be as productive as some man he could hire? So I had my plan all worked out, you know, and I, you know, my husband and I both have careers. We can afford to hire child care, you know. Uh, um, so it was, it was like a dream in my mind that all this was just going to work out unproblematically. Well, the re <laughs> I have to tell you this story. So I had Jessica came along. And we were, and I put my desk in the family room with my typewriter and the playpen over in the corner. And I said, okay, she will sit in the playpen and play quietly by herself while I work. <laughs> and then. I've uh, done enough babysitting. I don't have to talk about it. I've done <laughs> enough babysitting to know that's not going to work. <laughs> it that did not work at all. It all, you know, reality hit me. But, I'm, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I suspect most women feel this way. She was more important, you know, so the, those needs came first. But I figured out a way uh, to, to get some work done, and that is she took good naps for a while. <laughs> you know, I worked during her naps. I worked at night. And then uh, when she got a little bit older, I had, I had a babysitter a couple hours of the day. And so I got my job. When it was, in a way, I was lucky because George Mason was not a hard pressing place at the time, mm -hmm. you know. And, and I think that's why, in some respects, my experiences might not be useful for women today because, yeah, I did a lot of writing, but I could do it in concentrated parts, mostly in my office. And at night, I could deal with being a wife and a mother and, you know, a neighbor and, you know, piano player, you know. And so, uh, and I did some of my best work in those first, you know, those first couple of years, but I have to say that it is not some. It it is a difference between men and women. Um, my husband was the greatest father, but you know he went to work. He had a he had a job where he was out of the house ten hours a day, and anything happened, it was up to me. No, I had a job where if I needed to leave, I could say, I'll be back in an hour, you know, and, <laughs> and, and come, and I could, I had flexible hours, right. I mean, but I had to pick her up at the, at the preschool, 4.30 every afternoon, so if there was something that went on after that, it was, you know, it just couldn't happen, so I guess this, I don't want to give you too much of my own personal biography, but it, it seems to me that I did have limitations, I had limitations in the amount of time, but it meant I had to work more efficiently. So maybe that is the trade-off. You know, I didn't have as much time to hang around and talk to people. And, and then when I became chairman, my God, then I was going to meetings half of my life, and then it was really hard to keep my research program going. I, you know, I would snatch time here and there, and I'm a thinker that has to s sit for half an hour before anything comes in my head to write down, you know, so... Um, so, but I had colleagues, female colleagues, also had children, and I always wondered if maybe I was the only one struggling with this because they all seemed so serene. And it turns out, you know, we were all juggling in a way 
that our male colleagues didn't. So I think that is a real issue. And how do you how do you deal with it? That was the other part of your question. Yeah. Well, one of the things that George Mason hadn't yet started, I'm not sure if they, they, they talked about it, and I'm not sure if they ever did, but it would be so handy to have daycare right at your site. Now, the problem with that, of course, is their liability issues. And if you're, you know, and I guess some big companies can do it, but they have to be very you know, wary about it. But that would have been so comforting to know it would take me 10 minutes to walk over to the daycare center if there was a problem. That would be nice. The other thing, and this was good about uh, the first school I, I was teaching at on the tenure track. This, you know, Because that's a huge question for women. Do you have your children before you get tenure or after? Right. I mean, and, and I didn't have to worry about it because if you got a one-year pregnancy hiatus and the the clock stopped for a year and that way if you you know then in that year you could kind of figure out how to do things and then the clock ticked again and I think that would be a sensible policy for any university because the fact of the matter is w children are not just the product of women alone the husbands have something to do with it <laughs> and they and they don't get their tenure you know, they don't have to worry about the tenure clock. Yeah. Although I may be misjudging modern fathers because maybe they take more um, a greater role in the in the rearing of children, uh, at least the very young ones. But I, you know, my suspicion is it's still going to be more of an issue for women. So stopping the tenure clock, at you know, for a year would be a a great benefit. Because otherwise, think about your think about your your you know, your biological clock. You get out of graduate school, if you're lucky, you know, you're 24, 25, maybe 26. And then let's say you get your great first job and then you have six years, you're 32, maybe 33. Now, it's true, you, a lot of women have women in their mid and late 30s, but it's not a sure thing as when you're in your 20s. So I think that's another issue to balance. That's why I think an accommodation within the tenure process would be very helpful. Yeah. One of the other proposals that I've heard that um, seems to have potential to me is that the way so much academic evaluation happens right now is hyper-focused on quantity rather than quality. You know, there's, oh. there's the quip, deans might not have time to read, but they have time to count. Oh God! Th you have <laughs> you have pressed my button. <laughs> I've when when I was department chair, I would look at some of my colleagues who were turning these these annual reports like ten articles, you know, often with many co-authors, and off of them, each one like a little tiny bit of something that had, yeah, all right, a marg you know, a mini marginal contribution to anything anybody cared about, but the long project you know, the deep thing, you don't do 10 of those in a year. Well, Pete does, but, you know, he's different. <laughs> but, um, you know, very few can do that. Yeah. And unfortunately, I was the kind of person who had to think a long time before I could start writing, and I always said I never knew exactly what I thought about anything until I started writing it. And then I'd revise it like 16 times. So I was a slow producer, <laughs> um, I, and happy you know, to say that 
just about everything I thought was good got a lot of recognition. So um, maybe there's a benefit to being, being a slow thinker. But I do think that emphasis on counting up articles is detrimental, to, not just to women, but to anybody who t wants to take on a really significant project. And I mm -hmm. think that's probably worse in economics than maybe some other um, disciplines, but I'm not an expert in the other disciplines, so I'm not sure. Right. It's intuitive that it might be just because of the journal focus rather than yeah, yeah, the and space for book projects. And I always thought, in, I mean, I only I've only published two major books, but I was always thinking in book projects. You know, you, I, I was one of my colleagues one time said, "You put too many ideas in an article. You know, parse it out. You could have four articles here, but they all hung together. So I didn't know how to do that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's a feminine characteristic. I don't know. You know." Um, let's talk. You you brought up the um, the group, uh, your administrative work, mm -hmm. um, and we were chatting earlier this week, and you were telling me about the the group of women that you worked with at that time who were also department chairs. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so, um, could you say a, a little bit more about um, that work? Uh -huh. and, and actually, maybe let's let's take it back a, a little bit to kind of lead into it. Um, because you started your PhD program at Duke in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, so th this was not a time in which there were a great number of women enrolled. Mm -hmm. in. It, this is not um, too long after UCLA had denied Eleanor Ostrom admission to their economics PhD program because of her gender. Mm. Um, so th you know, this, was, this was not a, a time where it was maybe all that common. So... Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about just what your experiences were at, at Duke and the classrooms there, um, whether uh, you know being a woman was specifically an issue or something that was discussed, mm. and then kind of and, and then maybe we can go on to talk a little bit about how that might have changed, given that there does seem to be so much open more openness by the time you get to to George Mason in the mm. um, did you arrive in the eighties? Seventy eight. Seventy eight. Yeah. Well. Mm. The Duke experience was, was actually very positive to me. There were four women in the program, I think maybe 12, 12 men, maybe six more than that. I, you know, I, kind of, I don't remember the exact count, but it was kind of a joke. Oh, yeah, they let in four women every year, you know. <laughs> so, so we kind of snickered about that. But the, of the four of us, they were – we were all good performers, you know. Kept there was n no, I never felt any being singled out in class. Mm -hmm. Well, there was one little creep of a teacher, but he got fired. So, but other than that, markets worked. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, you were in the class. You did your work. You were great, and we all did really well in the program. And I don't, and it was not because we got any special favors. So, I, you know, I felt. I, I didn't have any sense of being any different, let me put it that way. Um, my roommate and I became fast friends. We're still friends. We both had really successful you know, um, academic careers. One of them went into um, one of the, uh, the agencies, think tank kind of thing, did a real, really well. The fourth one I kind of lost touch with. But um, so I just assumed, you know, life was rosy, you know. I got into this great program. I got 
full ride fellowship, never had to pay a nickel, got a job right out of graduate school with, without even having my PhD. You know, because in those days you could, all you needed to do was be in the dissertation stage and they would hire you. And my husband and I got jobs at the same school. So I didn't have any problems. I got to Tennessee. There was one other woman on the faculty who I greatly respected. And boy, she brooked no nonsense. But the chairman one time said, not, uh, he wasn't chairman yet, but one of the colleagues said, you know, until you came, women had to do their own typing. The secretaries didn't do it for them. So I looked at him and said, that's appalling, you know. He said, <laughs> you know. And I'm thinking, what is this? You know, this is nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but my attitude was always to dismiss these people as not worth my attention and just plow on. And uh, I, I had no trouble in classrooms. You know, and I had mostly males in the classroom. So I really can't say that my... I ever felt my academic career was hindered because I was a woman. Um, I think the old, maybe it was benefited. There were so few women; they remember people remembered me, you know. <laughs> uh, so I think the that the real issue that I guess troubles some people today is why are there so few women going into economics? And I. You know, I've, I've thought long and hard about this. I have no great answer to it. But, and this gets you into really, you know, dangerous territory. But economics is a way of thinking about the world. And it might not be congenial, not just to women, but a lot of men too. It's it's a very specific way of, of, of looking at, at actions and consequences and choices and, and and it's a framework you have to jump into and and make it part of your own mm -hmm. and it appealed to me you know um it, i went we one time took myers briggs test you know and i was way down on the bottom corner intj well it turns out like two percent of Women in the you know the world are INTJs. Only four percent of men. Something really like that. So I said, Ah, that explains why so many tel people tell me they hated economics. You know, <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, uh, what is interesting to me is how the Austrian program has attracted more women, and it's still analytic. It still requires you you to think, but it also allows you to explore outside of a narrow model. And I think that may be something that's more attractive to people, dare I say, with more imagination. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's a language, and a, one of the things about, I found early on as economists is you didn't use the right words and you, know, you, you were dismissed. And so you learn to use a particular language. Where Austrians are more open about the language that they use, and, you know. So, if there's any truth to the to the to the argument that you know women are more language oriented than men, that might have something to do with it. But anyway, I think it's wonderful, and I think it's something that should be imported into the rest of the profession. So you said that your colleague in Tennessee brooked no nonsense, yeah. and you 
seem to me like someone who probably doesn't put up with too much yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess my question is, um, do you think that kind of attitude is helpful when you're trying to step into a space um, that maybe maybe doesn't always feel particularly welcoming. Do you, do you think there's a, a bit of a, a selection effect in that the like early cohorts of women moving into um, a particular space, it's going to be kind of extra important? But I mean, I, I think kind of maybe it's something that still helps oh. today, no matter where you are. But well, I mean, it's a sense of it's a sense of self confidence, mm-hmm. and you have to have the self confidence that you know your stuff, and I. And I have to say, whenever I was talking about a paper or something that I wrote, I always felt I I know this, you know. Um, that isn't to say I always had an enormous amount of self confidence, but I could project it over anything about uh, can, about work that I'd done. Um, too many women students, actually, and some students, they'd be a little shy to speak up in class or. I had a graduate seminar, and really smart young woman, every smart young woman, and she would start with, well, I don't know if this is right, and I'm not sure. And finally, I, she reminded me, I said this to her, I said, you know, you never maximize your career achievements by, by being self-deprecating. <laughs> and that's something I had to learn, too, because my male colleagues never had any problem telling you how great their work was, you know. <laughs> or the uh, you know another thing I didn't do that took me the longest time, assigning my own work in graduate classes. Mm. I'm thinking, oh, that's just calling too much. That's being you know, too arrogant. Oh, blah blah. Then every other one of them has like six of their own articles that the graduate students have to read, and I thought. I'm really missing out, you know. <laughs> so yeah. I started doing that. <laughs> yeah. That's great. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I had that same, um, not so much about my work, but kind of this worry that maybe I don't want to sound like I'm too aggressive. You know. uh, I got over that in a big, a big way just because you had to fight your way to, you know, to uh, – to get there, but uh, it's something I would advise all my gre- my female students. I, as far as I can tell, looking around here, the women here don't have that problem. No, I don't think we have a lot of wallflowers <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> here in this program. Um, so, do you think um, that this attitude is something that you were able to then carry into your administrative work? And when you went into that space, you know, with, you know, you started out listening to, you know, I am woman, hear me roar, (laughs) and then, you know, you went. Singing it. Yeah, (laughs) singing it. And then you went to this amazing PhD program, so you not only have the confidence that you know your stuff, but you actually know your stuff. (laughs) And so then when you went into the administrative space and are trying to do this kind of program building, and I know you did a lot of work bringing Jim Buchanan to George Mason University, um, did you find that that was um, productive for you and respected? No and no, <laughs> but important, you know, because the reason I got, I was asked to be chair of the department is because I brought Jim Buchanan in the Public Choice Center, and I negotiated all of those, the the uh, uh, 
basically back and forth between the administration and, and Jim about the particulars of the move. Mm. And so the dean said, gee, how about you be chairman? And Jim loved the idea because he trusted me. So and I thought, well, I'll do it for a year and a, a year or so and get out of it. Because I was really starting to cook on my, my research program. I mean, I was get, and I had a lot of ideas I wanted to work on, but no, I had to be, I had to be chairman, and I had no idea how much work that was. I see. So, in some sense, you were a, a bit of a victim of your own competence. <laughs> yeah, I should never have negotiated that deal so much. Yeah. But um, uh, I did find, although there's a lot of busy work, there are things about it I really liked. I, you know, I've I've discovered over the years that. I like being in charge, you know, of myself, and you know, and and I've had to learn to step back a little bit. But in those years, I I learned more, so much about how the university worked, and that's something that if you're isolated in a department, especially then, I don't think that's Mercatus's problem so much. But and then you could be in your own little enclave and think the whole world revolves around you and you're the most, and that was the attitude of a lot of people in the economics department. You know, we're the best department, we're, you know, and they just have to recognize it. Well, as chairman, I went to meetings with the dean and all the other chairmen once a, you know, once a month, sometimes more when there was a problem, and I'd listen to all the others. And it gave me an appreciation for how a university as a whole worked and the constraints they're under. And that was something I had a hard time con conveying to a lot of my colleagues, that it, they didn't give us more money, not because they didn't like us, but because there's so little money. To, you know, well, why did they give it to the English department? Well, you can't have a university if you don't have an English department, you know, that kind of thing. And I had a really collegial relation, almost a more collegial relationship with the administration and the other chairs than I had with some members of my department. So I, I always felt that while I would have preferred not to do it, that I was representing the department in an effective way and making friends. I mean, economists don't go out of their way to make friends with people in other departments. And I thought that, you know, especially considering that they all thought mm -hmm. we were crazy right-wing nuts, you know. Uh, I wanted to disabuse them of that and to, and to bring some an attitude of respect for their work and then, you know, demand an attitude of respect for ours. And I think I was pretty successful, at least with a lot of people. I mean, you, you mentioned my, my female chair friends, and we forged a real bond during those years. In the College of Arts and Sciences, when I first became chair, there were seven female chairs of important departments. Wow. You know. Economics, philosophy, history, psychology, um, art, well, art history, and then there's one other, I, I, I can't remember what the other one was, that's, that's five, I'm missing somebody, but um, at any rate, you'll, oh, you'll English, 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 okay. <laughs> so was there a coordinated <laughs> effort by anybody in the, uh, the, leadership of the university at that time to try to bring in more women? Or was it th was this purely something that um, emerged as an artifact of, of who the best people in the area happened to be? Yeah, I don't think there was, a, there was, well, there was a little bit of a concerted effort. I mean, the university started to be under, under pressure for hiring more women. And this is, I'll tell this story on me, but 
I, when I interviewed, um, I had three authors, and I gave, I know I gave a really good talk, and the department, you know, the department didn't have a lot of people doing much research at the time, and they were very young, and um, I came highly recommended by Jim Buchanan, and, and so, you know, I got the job figuring, and I looked around, and the, uh, the other person in the department who I thought was really good was another woman, you know, so we were, we became friends. And years and years and years and years later, at, um, at Snavely gave a talk. It was actually at a, a memorial service for one of my colleagues, and he said, you know, when early on the, the uh, president told us we had to hire another woman, and we were so lucky because we hired Karen, you know, and then we had to hire another African-American, and we were so lucky we hired Walter. Well, Walter and I both went, you know, our mouths dropped open, and I was the next person up. I thought, you know, what do I say? So I said, I said, Bill, you know what? If I had known how much pressure you were under to hire me, I would have held out for a lot more money. <laughs> <laughs> and, and everybody laughed. So that was the first I ever heard of it. I, I, um, and I have to say, I was a little offended because I deserved that job on my own merits. And anybody, I felt like this school would be, you know, lucky to get people like me to come in. I mean, again, that sounds a little arrogant, but I looked around and I thought, I know I'm at least as good or you know, better than anybody here. So, so um, that's one of the reasons I've always had a little problem with affirmative action programs. I don't. They haven't been the disaster that I predicted initially. Mm -hmm. I mean, making making people aware that women have a lot to say is probably a good thing. But there, and Walter used to talk about this all the time too. There's always this little worry: did they hire me because I'm a woman, or because they thought I was good? I, I, am I a compromise? Now it turns out, you know, after my career here, I don't think anybody would claim I was a compromise, but. It, you know, had I been told that in the beginning, it would have undercut, you know, my confidence a little bit. So um, that's a long-winded answer to your question. No, that's fantastic. And, and that's a phenomena that a lot of, uh, especially early recipients who are, it, where it's made clear to them that they're the beneficiaries of affirmative action, I, I, I think that's not an uncommon kind of reaction to report. And it's a difficult problem. So I, um, Shelley Lundberg um, is an economist, and she said there's a lot of talk in economics about wanting to um, promote women, and there is pressure from administrations and all of this, but economists don't really do affirmative action because they're very committed to the idea mm. of getting, you know, the research is a priority, getting the right people into the right mm -hmm. departments. So kind of that's her response to um, to people who claim that when they see a woman in a position, oh, she's only been asked to be there because of mm -hmm. her gender. Mm -hmm. Her response is, uh, you know, econ economists don't go in no, for that. No, they <laughs> don't do that. No. Yeah. And I respect that. I mean, I really do. You get the best person. And I've I have to say, there are a lot of really, really sharp women in the economics profession. I don't think you can count up bodies, you know, and say, oh, 
you need 50% or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's self-selection, as we talked about earlier, and self-selection matters. And, and as I said, when it comes to evaluating my work and you know publishing, I never felt that there was any kind of consideration of the fact that I was a woman. You know, that, that just, it, I'm not, I don't know that that's in other departments, but I certainly felt, felt that here with journals or anything like that. It is a tricky problem, though, because as much as I see the the dangers in emphasizing too much gender and trying to make professional decisions, I also see the argument that there can be value in representation and having somebody that you can look up to who uh -huh. looks like you. You know, I think back to the early history of women's rights and you know, Susan uh, B. Anthony, one of the reasons why she developed the idea she had about how, uh, how intellectually capable and productive and responsible women could be is that she, uh, when she was growing up, her father owned a textile mill for about mm -hmm. a decade, a couple mills actually, mm -hmm. and uh, she saw the women working mm -hmm. and that they were good at it and they could manage their mm -hmm. finances and do, so she saw, you know, she saw women doing things that it was not commonly accepted were normal roles for them and mm -hmm. it it changed her attitude mm -hmm. so I don't so yeah. do, do you think that this argument about about representation and role models has has merit is it worth considering I, it is it is and but I've come to this over time you know thinking about it my mother was a very strong woman she went back to work when I was 13 and just started as a secretary and wound up as an office manager and um, that my first real economics course was micro theory taught by a woman who was co-author of the textbook we used. Hmm. And I was the only w young woman in the class, but she was the teacher. And you know, and I, it, I don't think I said to myself, oh boy, a woman can be an economist. It just, it was, it, but it did make an impression on me. Actually, I had another woman who taught money and banking, but she was a flake. But I mean, you know, but there were male flakes too. So I didn't, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. So, um, and then I went to graduate school, and there were no females teaching. And Juanita Kreps was there, but she was on leave. But by then, it just never occurred to me that there was any problem, you know, with with me being in a in a in an environment taught by men. Sure. But I do think when I was teaching, there would be you know, women who would come up and talk to me. You know, they wouldn't ask about women's issues, but I think they felt comfortable. You know, I tried to teach a course once called Women in Economics, and it it didn't. And I had six young women in the class, and it was okay. Um, and I was mostly talking about how markets are beneficial to women and stuff like that. But it was never a focus of you know of my career. But I do think I do think you have a point about seeing someone, as you say, looks like you and faces many of the same issues in life that you do, who's also successful. You know, and you're. I mean, I'm sure it. it I, I could turn the question over to you. You know, was it important for you? Yeah, I think it was important for me, and I. I've also observed it. I think being important for students, uh -huh. and so sometimes when I. Uh, give guest lectures at outside universities. There's a always a Q and A session after okay. you give a talk, 
and I've sometimes had questions only from women. Mm -hmm. And I ask my male colleagues, yeah. how often do you go give an economics lecture and have all the questions or most of the questions be from the, you know, the young women in the audience? And they say, never. It's, yeah. al it's almost always the, you know, because usually you expect after a lecture, it's going to be that, that overly aggressive guy who thinks he knows everything about economics oh. who wants to get up and tell you. But I get, you know, like you said, a lot of women feeling like they can yeah. talk to me. Uh -huh. um, but I didn't really have female... Um, professors mm -hmm. in economics. Um, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I didn't forget anybody, but it it wasn't um, really until starting to work with you at conferences and and with Bobby Herzberg coming and joining the mm -hmm. Hayek program that I had mm -hmm. um, some kind of female mentors and also and her coming here um, actually did kind of change my mind on this issue as well because there were things that you know as close as I am to other of my colleagues and mentors that mm -hmm. I just wasn't all that comfortable talking about with them. Yeah. <laughs> when I first started teaching, I used to like to read. I mean, I was brand new married, you know, setting up a household, and I liked to read women's magazines, but I'd hide them. <laughs> I didn't want any of my colleagues ever to see me reading anything like that. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> then I finally decided that was a job, too, and you had to have skills for both jobs. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, you you, we, we talked about this earlier, and, and, I, and I've talked about how I never felt any discrimination about my work. But it isn't like it was a smooth ride the whole way. Right. <laughs> and part of it was my colleagues. And I, you know, I had a lot of really good colleagues. But I had some that I think definitely resented the fact that I was in charge of the department. And they were, and this is, I only bring this up because it's kind of an interesting phenomenon. It was my, it was the younger ones, mm. and it wasn't the the uh, you know people, my contemporaries, and especially people I had you know um, come to know uh, the, the teaching here. But the younger ones sort of, it's almost they came in with this brash attitude, the, the typical you know young economist attitude, mm. and. They really didn't like it, you know, having any kind of direction for me. And I wasn't very good at handling them because I thought this was kind of surprising and, and, uh, and frankly, insulting, you know. And, and there, were, there were a couple of people in the public choice department that I think had a real problem with me. But I was sort of in a protected position because I had the 800-pound gorilla, you know, Buchanan, you know, on in my corner. But uh, I, it was nice to have a, a Nobel Prize winner <laughs> or, <laughs> or a future Nobel Prize winner in your corner. But, you know, I, so I can see it's not an overt thing, but sometimes there is this sort of skepticism. And um, I had one younger colleague, I gave a paper at, a, at one of the, uh, the um, faculty seminars, and he asked, not only did he ask dumb questions, but in the most insulting way possible. And, you know, it was clear he was just going to be so disdainful and show how much smarter he was. And he was all wrong, you know. But I, and, and I think this is illustrative of, of, of a way of dealing with this. I didn't get mad. I didn't, you know, I didn't get my hackles up. I just apologize for being unclear and saying, let me help you by clarifying what I meant to say, you know, and, 
and and I think that was an attitude that is useful. You know, you don't take them on. You just you're just as dispassionate as possible, and, and I, you know, indirectly, you know, put him in his place. But I think, and I haven't actually seen that very often. But there were a couple of younger people in this department who were, who were just nasty to me, you know. And um, of course, they could have been nasty to men too. Who knew, you know? Yeah, I always struggle with that question myself yeah. because academia in general is a place where there is pettiness and jealousy yeah. and you know people who and not everybody but there are people who have academic careers who maybe have not really worked jobs where there were real consequences to poor performance exactly. before exactly <laughs> you yeah. can get away with bad behavior in a way you maybe can in other environments so is, is someone behaving badly to me because I'm a woman or just because they would find any reason to behave badly to me mm-hmm. I, I don't know I can't tell yeah and and so my I, I think my takeaway from that is don't assume it's because you're a woman. Just assume it's because they're jerks. And then, and then you just go about your business. And as I one time thought, well, if you have, you're, you're not, let's say you're a person having, not having a lot of success in your career. You can either say, oh, it's because they don't like me because I who I am gender, race, ethnicity, or something like that. Or you can say, gee, maybe I haven't worked hard enough. Now, the first one might be true, but the second one is the, is the strategy that's going to help you in either case. So I just, right. you know, you just assume that, you know, you just got to work harder. Now, of course, that leads to the, to the uh, issue of, well, do women have to work harder than men? And I don't know. You know, I, it seems to me the women I know in the economics profession are, you know, they're great. Um, I don't know that they worked harder than their colleagues, or maybe they work smarter, or maybe there's no difference. How do you measure something like that? I don't really know. I don't know either. <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, I want to come back to um, to kind of a broader question that we had on the table at the beginning, and this, this might be kind of a nice place to end the conversation, but you know, since, um, since we are economists um, and wanting to try to, to understand uh, you know, how in general it is that we can live in a society that brings out the best in everybody, mm-hmm. so you know, kind of the women, but also just you know, everybody living in that society in general, um, I thought we might circle back a little bit to this idea of pro-market feminism that we started with mm-hmm. um, kind of in the beginning. And so I think sometimes these criticisms about gender in the workplace wind up being extended into being broader criticisms about um, work itself, about mm-hmm. capitalism itself, mm-hmm. about you know whether you know within a uh, a market economy and within a, a a wage labor economy, if this is destructive of family and and so, you know, I I was hoping maybe you could offer some thoughts just on general in um, whether markets are are good for women and good for families and, and you know and if there are um, if these are not costs of market activity 
but maybe instead there might actually be some some benefits to kind of uh, to to family and benefits in terms of equality that actually come out of the market rather than the market purely presenting challenges on these margins. Gee, that's a big question. That's we have five minutes. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, obviously, I would be pro market, yeah. and and if you and. Partly from an historical perspective, I mean, markets did so much to really liberate women from from drudgery. And you know, <clears throat> one time, I, I was starting a paper. I never finished it, but, but it was starting off with the premise that women always worked. This is, working women is not a new thing. They just worked at different jobs. And you know, if you're thinking the the, the people who find old uh, peasant existence as idyllic should just see the backbreaking work that women have had to do. I mean, because running a household was like running a business, and what markets do is give you more choices. But not only do they give you more choices, they give you more innovation, and the innovation has made that drudgery of you know washing the clothes in a in a wash tub outside in the backyard has turned it into throwing in a washing machine, turning a switch, and then going out to work. You know, to me, this this is <laughs> this is a no-brainer. You know, uh, I don't disparage markets. I I am I I'm I celebrate them because all of this. If I had been born, even when my mother was, mm -hmm. I would not have gone to college because you know it's a waste. My father said to me, "What's the point of you going to college? You're just going to go get married." And and, yeah. and my mother, of course, you know, jumped all over him on that, and I ignored him, and I went off. I only go to college, not only get a PhD. Wound up supporting him in his old age, and I said to him, "Well, you glad I went to college now?" You know, but that would have been. Did he change his, yeah, his tune? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not. There, he has a whole different background. I mean, it was a, a different ethnicity and all. But I've been thinking, if I had been born, like. 30, 40 years before, my life, I wouldn't have had a career. Uh, maybe I would have been a school teacher. And that would, even my mother said to me, you know, get a teaching degree. You can always have something to fall back on. Well, with that, every nurse or teacher, that's what we were told, you know, when we were really young. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know why I never thought I was going to limit myself to that. You know, it just, I was, you know, I did well in school and, I, I was coming, I was growing up at an age where people weren't all hyper aware of women and things, but I had a good education. And markets can can give you the wherewithal to have good education, to have choices, to you know. I'm not so happy about social media, but you know there, but there's communication, you know that lets you know what opportunities are, and. Yeah, there are challenges to family, so I don't want to paint this overly rosy picture, because when you have, you know, if two, and God, this is a whole other podcast, but if you have two, you know, a husband and a wife, both on super hard-charging careers, then unless they have very dedicated nannies, I don't see how the kids, you know, are adequately incorporated into their lives. And I think that was 
that is a real issue. So it might be that maybe you can't have two CEOs in the family. Or if you have two CEOs in the family, then you have the household re faithful household retainer, but you know they don't exist much anymore. So I think that's a challenge. The other challenge I see is different the kind of differences in parenting styles. I was, when I grew up, I went out to play, came home at dinner time. When my daughter grew up, we managed to have pretty much the same. We lived in a neighborhood. She could go out and play, and you know. Now, there are soccer teams. There's swim team. There's there's uh, play dates. Kids don't just go out and play. You have to arrange play dates and sleepovers, and like you, your whole life can could be absorbed with those activities. Um, I live in Georgia, and there are a lot of of um, well, I wouldn't say that there you know, may be more non, uh, non, women not employed outside the house, but even the ones who have jobs and all, their whole weekends are tied up driving their kids in different places. So I'm not sure that's a good development. I don't, I have, you know, I don't think there's any political remedy for this, and I don't think a socialist organ, you know, a, a, um, a a socialist government is going to improve on it much because the cost of of regulating and bureaucratizing is limiting choices limiting in innovation and i'm and then and then uh, regimenting schools i mean you look at the schools and some of the even the highly touted uh, scandinavian countries and Parents have almost no say in what goes on in the, you know, in the school systems. Well, at least that's what my Norwegian relatives tell me, because <laughs> I don't, I don't have firm evidence on this, just hearsay. But, but so I mean, my bottom line is, as when you ask, is this, is it a benefit? And I'll ha I, I'm an economist. Compared to what? What's the alternative? And any alternative I can think of is a whole lot worse which may not be something to cause people to go marching with banners down the, the road, but it's a realistic assessment of the human condition. It, there's, you know, if there is no ideal if in, the, in the world. There is only the best you can get, and markets give you the best shot at getting the best you can get. Well, thank you so much. This has been Karen Vaughn, and we're all very grateful that you never did limit yourself. <laughs> And we'll, we'll follow your example and do the same. Um, so thank you very much for talking today. Well, thank you, Jamie. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.